Reading of the word comes from 1 Corinthians 11:17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Grass withers and the flowers fade. But the, the word, word of our, our God, God stands, stands forever. forever. So in our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul is continuing to instruct what it looks like to live as a unified body in a fractured world. But now, he, starting last week in chapter 11, or the beginning of chapter 11, all the way through chapter 14, now he is sort of doing this um, giving this instruction within the context of the local church. What is the church supposed to look like? How is the church supposed to live its life together? In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays for Christians. He's praying for his disciples, but he also prays for those of us who call upon his name even now. And he's praying that Christians would be one as he and his heavenly Father are one. Why? Why does Jesus pray a prayer like that? Well, simply, it's because so that the world may believe that he was sent by the Father. So he prays that we would have unity, unity around the gospel, that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one, so that we would point to the reality of the gospel. That through this observable love, the world would recognize that Jesus truly is the Son of God. 
The late apologist and theologian Francis Schaeffer called this the final apologetic. He says this in his book, The Mark of a Christian. Quote, he, here, here Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. He goes on to say that that we must be able to give honest answers to honest questions, and I think for a lot of us, we're really good at giving answers. We like questions, we like to give answers, we like to sort of uh, prop ourselves up that we are smart and engaged and we know what we're talking about. But if this is divorced from Christians showing genuine love towards each other, this is what Schaefer says, sort of echoes of 1 Corinthians 13 that we'll look at in a few weeks. He says, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen to us even when we give proper answers. So the problem that we're sort of wrestling with in our text this morning is this lack of love within the Corinthian church that is being displayed of all places at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's table. So Paul uses the table as this visible representation of how the church is to live its life together, of how the supper is an observable feast that shows the unity that Jesus prayed for that declares to a watching world that he truly is the Son of God. So we're going to look at this text in three ways this morning. One, we are going to look at the fractured table. Two, we're going to look at the unified table. And then three, we're going to look at the grace-filled table. And I just want to say, somebody pointed this, Braley pointed this out to me yesterday. It's like, how appropriate this is since it's Thanksgiving week. And as you, I was like, I was not thinking about that at all. I am not that creative or that cheesy, really, honestly. Um, but it just so happens to be that. So, so the first thing we'll look at is the fractured table. Look with, look with me again at verses 17 through 22. <clears throat> Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So just to give you a little background on Roman dining customs in the first century, and I think it's helpful to understanding what was actually happening in the church in this particular moment that Paul is talking about here. Because while Paul did say back in verse 2 that, that he commended the Corinthians, if you remember last week, he commended the Corinthians for holding to the gospel traditions, he was still rooting out things from the culture that were continuing to seep into the church. And the practice of the Lord's Supper was one that was being influenced more by Roman culture than it was being influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It's why Paul says twice in these verses in 17 through 22, I do not commend you. I can't commend you. Why? Because during their corporate worship gathering, they were creating division amongst themselves instead of unity. So in our day, we have church buildings, we have structures that can house a good number of people like this auditorium here. Uh, it can hold, I think it can hold a little over 300, I think, something like that. Um, but in the first century, the church was dependent upon members who had larger homes. They didn't have church buildings, they didn't have these structures that they could go and meet in. Um, but they were dependent upon members who had larger homes. And, and those with larger homes, obviously, just like even now, tended to be wealthy and influential. And, and still very much influenced, though, by Roman dining customs. So typically, if you were a host during this, this time and you had a larger house, uh, you would have favored guests to come share a meal in their dining room. So typically, because of the way in which the Roman, uh, Roman culture and the, how they ate and partook of, a, uh, of their food, there was a lot of like leaning back on these cushions. And so it took up a lot of space. So typically, a dining room could hold, only hold about nine to ten people. And so these, these guests would be accommodated in this dining room, and they were served by servants the best food and the best wine. But when the church would arrive, the rest of the, rest of the gathered community, the rest of the, of, the, of the family of God would arrive to gather for worship, which included the Lord's Supper every Sunday or every Lord's Day. They would have to sit or stand in the atrium, which is essentially a hallway. And, and, and they may not be served food at all, but if, even if they were served food, it was a different kind of food that the people in the dining room were served. It was food that was intended for lower class people. So latecomers and less well-connected Christians were treated like second class guests in the church. So immediately and obviously, this created division amongst the church. Paul states this very clearly in verses 17 through 18 when he says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So essentially, this is what Paul is saying, just to break it down just in a very simple way. Paul is saying that when you come together, as the gathered body, as, as the family of Jesus, that the Roman world, that the, Corinth, the city of Corinth is watching and observing, when you come together, it's actually anti-gospel. Because the better here that Paul is talking about, that the church is meant to display is, is, is what should divide us, um, what should divide us should be overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things like social status and race and class and wealth and politics and gender. What should actually be happening, Paul calls, the better should be happening when we gather as a body. These divisions should be overcome. They should be non-existent when the church gathers. 
And that happens visibly around the Lord's table. So so the broken body and poured out blood uh, of Jesus should eradicate, and it does eradicate divisions that would be present elsewhere in the city's culture. It levels the playing field. It equalizes everyone in the room. But the opposite was happening in Corinth. Instead of eradicating divisions, they were creating them. So what causes fractures and divisions at our table? And you might be thinking, oh, no, there's nothing. I don't have anything that would cause uh, a fracture or division in the way that Corinth, these Corinthians are doing. There's no possible way. But I would say you probably need to pause and think about that a little bit more. Because I know in my own heart, I create divisions. That I am drawn to certain people. I mean, we've been taught this from a very early age. We've been taught to divide. I mean, if, if you went to uh, school, any school, public, private, uh, or, or, or wherever, uh, you were sent to a school and you were immediately divided into age groups, into categories. Even within the church, we do this. We divide up. We say, this age group goes over here and they're together, and this age group goes over here and they're together, and never do they really intermingle. Our politics divide us. I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, the 1980s. Some of you don't even know what that is. But I remember, and this is like a very distinct memory. I'm not sure why it is, but it's just one of those things that's locked in. But I remember that we were on the school bus and that we were chanting for a political candidate. With my, I was chanting with my classmates simply because the bus bully was chanting the other political candidate's name. So we divide. We're taught to do that. I mean, just think about these questions. Are you hesitant to be around certain people? Do do they need to be in the same social standing as you? They might need to be. You might think, yeah, they do need to be in the same social standing so, so that I'm not uncomfortable. And so that they're not uncomfortable. Do they need to vote for the same political party as you? Is this a turnoff for a friendship? Do they need to, d- to be the same color as you or the same culture as you? And you might think, oh, no, 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 no. We, you know, this is, I, I'm not racist. I'm not, you know, I, I like people of, of a different color than I am and in different cultures. I want that. But really, there, it, racism is still very much a real thing in our country, in our world even. We're seeing that play out. It's still said that, that, that this hour on Sunday morning is still the most racially divided hour of our whole entire week. Do they need to be the same age and stage for you? I've heard that because we, we have a very young church. I know that. I'm one of the oldest people here, and, and I'm in only in my 40s. <laughs> but we divide over age and stage because we say, well, I need to be around people my age. I need to interact with them. I need to have things in common. And then we divide. 
Do they need to hold the exact same theological stances as you do? These are just a few questions, but I'm sure you can think of more. I'm sure you can think of even just personal applications in your own heart of why you would divide, why you would separate, why you would fracture the Lord's table. Paul tells the Corinthians in verses 20 through 22 that this sort of behavior that they are playing out within the church, he says, this is not the Lord's Supper. This is not the gospel that you are proclaiming. Rather, it's a selfish, overindulging, snobbish gathering where the elites are lifted up and the poor are overlooked. I was reading in Luke 1 this morning in Mary's Magnificat, the, the, the song that she sings after she is told that she is going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And then she, she makes this, uh, she sings this beautiful, uh, biblically saturated song to God. And it's about God. And so these are a couple of verses that she sings in verses 15, 52 and 53 of Luke chapter 1. Uh, she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He, w- he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich... He is sent away. The Corinthians are guilty not because they're enjoying good food and good drink. That's not the reason they're guilty. The reason they are guilty is because they're actually doing the opposite of God's own heart. And the results of this, Paul says, is that the church of God is despised. It's despised uh, not only from those inside, but it's also despised by those outside. I mean, here here, here, here are unbelievers, pagans in Corinth, looking in on this community and saying, you're no different than us. And not not only is the church of God despised, Christian brothers and sisters are humiliated and isolated. They're not putting the final apologetic into play in their church because it's a fractured table, not the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table, as we'll learn in our second point, is a unified table, and because it's a unified table, it stands in stark contrast to the world's ideas of stature. So I don't know if you can remember the best meal that you've ever had, uh, but I can. It, It took place two years ago at an upscale Jewish deli. I know that sounds like, what? And that's exactly what I was thinking when I went to this place. An upscale Jewish deli uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was it's called Abe Fisher's. And if you look it up, it no longer exists. Um, they they didn't go out of business because I know what you're thinking. Like, why would you like a, a restaurant that's gone out of business? They actually combined with the restaurant next door to them. Anyways, just to give you that heads up. But it was one of the best meals I have ever eaten in my entire life, period. And it helps uh, that I went to this place with a friend who is a true 
foodie, and you, some of you might say, well, I'm a true foodie. This guy is the truest foodie you have ever met. So he knew exactly what appetizers to get. He knew what wine paired with which foods the best, and he knew what main courses our party would all enjoy. And then on top of that, the service was incredible. This was an Applebee's. And truly the most hospitable restaurant that I have ever been to, so much so that after we finished up dessert, the, the waitress came out, our server came out with it with a couple of other servers, and with her own bottle of spirits, toasted us and filled all of our cups with this same drink. It was incredible. But the main reason this meal was so memorable, even though the food was delicious and, and the wine was great, the reason why this meal was so incredible and so memorable was because of the people that sat at the table with me. I wasn't there by myself. I wasn't there with just one other person. I was there with a, with a group of men. All of us are in pastoral ministry together. And so we were enjoying this meal together. And you know this to be true as well. The, the, the dinner table is a powerful place. Typically, if you are enjoying a good meal, it is more than likely being shared with, with friends or, or those who are quickly becoming friends and sharing it with those you love. Around the table, community is created and sustained. It's a place where strangers become friends and where hospitality, true biblical hospitality, is extended. But it can also be a place of pain and dysfunction, as many of you are dreading this Thursday, because you have to sit around that table of pain and dysfunction with family members and friends. But all that to say that the table is powerful for good or for ill. And this was the dysfunction that was being displayed in Corinth. But the Lord's Supper was designed to, to demonstrate something unique. It, it, it's more than a mere meal together, although it is but it's a cosmic, eschatological, gospel proclamation when we come to this table. And because of this, because it's, it, is, it is cosmic, it is eschatological, eschatological because it is a gospel proclamation, um, it, it has caused many theological questions to arise throughout church history. There, there are, there are a, a, a many views about the Lord's Supper, but I wanted to just kind of pause and kind of just to, just to set you up for this. We're going to wade into the deep end a little bit, okay? So if you want to take a little nap uh, because you don't care about it, you can go ahead and do that for the next five minutes or so. Um, but, if you want, if, but if you're a true Christian and truly spiritual, you'll stay awake and you'll listen and you'll wade into the deep end with me. So I'm just setting you up for this. Because I want us to look at these four main views of the Lord's Supper because I think it will help us just in our understanding of what it is and what it represents and what we do here on a Sunday. So the first view, and probably the most popular but probably the least understood, is the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. 
So this view of the Lord's Supper is known as transubstantiation. And I'm not going to have you repeat that. Transubstantiation. So trans, we all know what that word means. It means change. And substantiation means substance. So change of substance. So in this view, it's taught that the bread and wine actually transform into the real flesh and real blood of Christ when blessed by the priest at Mass. So so the substance of the bread, the essential qualities of the bread and wine, Roman Catholics believe and teach, changes. So when one takes the bread and wine, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, they are taking into themselves the actual body and blood of Christ. So biblically speaking, and I'm not going to go into great depths to argue any, any uh, of the ones that, that I don't agree with, so, so you'll, you'll be disappointed if that's what you're waiting for, but biblically speaking, you don't have any scripture passages or teachings, even from Jesus himself, that lay this out in any way. For one, when Jesus is taking the supper physically, um, he, or he doesn't do anything physically to, to communicate. He is turning the bread and wine into these things. Now, from our text today, Paul communicates this, uh, this, uh, this understanding of what the Lord's Supper actually is through the use of the little word is that you see there in verses 24 and 25. When, when, when uh, Paul reiterates Jesus' words, this is my body and this is the cup. Now, Roman Catholics would say, well, there you go. That's it right there. He, he says, this is my body and this is my cup. But the word is here means simply to stand for or to represent. And, and what the bread and, 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 and wine represent is, is the body and blood of Christ, the body which is broken for you and the blood that is poured out for you. It represents that that Jesus' own body and his own blood was spilled uh, at death for the sake of his people. So that's the Roman Catholic view. The second popular view is the Lutheran view. So this second view was held and taught by Martin Luther himself, hence the name Lutheran. But Luther disagreed with the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation and, and taught and practiced that Christ was present in the bread and wine, but rather the bread and wine coexist with the body and blood of Christ. Now, this view came to be known as consubstantiation, consubstantiation. So con, the word con meaning together or with, and of course, substantiation again, meaning substance. So, it was, so Christ's body, Luther taught, was together or with the bread. It didn't actually turn into the bread and the wine, but it was with it. It was present with it. So uh, Luther was famous with saying that Christ's presence is in, with, and under the bread and wine whenever the supper is celebrated. So, so Christ is still physically present, Luther would say, just not in the bread and in the wine. So again, another view that I don't believe can be argued from the scriptures. 
So that's the second view. So the Roman Catholic view, Lutheran view. The third view is called the memorial view. So this was made popular by another, uh, uh, by a reformer, another reformer named Ulrich Zwingli, who took Jesus's words, do this in remembrance of me. He took those literally to mean that the supper was meant to always be a memorial service, remembering the death of Christ. So so the bread and wine are mere symbols reminding us of his death, and that is all it's for. No presents, nothing. That these were just mere symbols that just reminded you of Christ's death. Now, I do believe that when we come to the table, we are remembering the death of Christ. We are doing this. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He is telling us to remember his death, to remember what his death has accomplished for our salvation, but I don't believe it to be in a memorial sense. And you guys know that about me. Simply because Christ has risen from the dead. He no longer hangs on the cross. The cross is empty. Jesus is alive. And so while we do remember the death of Christ, we also come celebrating his life at the very same time. The fourth view, the fourth most popular view uh, is the real presence view. So we we have uh, this view that John Calvin taught uh, and the one that we hold to here at CTK, whether you knew that or not. Uh, this is this is formally known as the real presence view or or the spiritual presence view. So Calvin's problem with his uh, with with Zwingli uh, was that he didn't believe that he went far enough. He was simply saying you can't just stop there and have no uh, no reality of Jesus being present with us. And his problem with the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view had to do with the physicality of Jesus's body being in so many places at one time. So essentially, his was uh, Calvin's view was very, very much logical. He was saying uh, Jesus in the flesh is not omnipresent. Jesus in the flesh is not everywhere at once, all at the same time. And so the Roman Catholics who, who believe that it, that he's actually present, and the Lutherans who believe he's actually present, uh, if the actual body and blood of Christ are in the supper, and there are Christian Christians sharing the supper in London and Tokyo and New York City and you know Pittsburgh and Augusta, Georgia, all at the same time, Calvin would say, how can Jesus' body be there at once in all of those places? It can't. So in the real presence view, uh, the bread and, and the wine bring to us the presence of Jesus and his benefits. And this is made possible by the Holy Spirit who makes true fellowship with the risen Christ possible in the present. So what Calvin would say is that he that the Spirit comes in during, during our, our, our sharing of the Lord's Supper and he lifts us up to the risen Christ. That he puts us into the presence of God. And that is the Spirit's work, not ours. To say it another way, in the Lord's Supper's, Supper, Christians commune with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And because of this reality, 
to not take the Lord's Supper seriously, like the Corinthians were doing, is to make a grave error, which is what we're seeing happening in the Corinthian church. So in verses 23 through 26, Paul takes us as an opportunity to, to remind the Corinthians of the supper using the words of Christ himself, Christ's words of institution that we had read for us earlier um, from the Gospel of Luke. And so Paul simply reiterates these words. Look there with me again at 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul reiterates this because this ritual action imitates the meal Jesus had with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was going to the cross. And we see in that meal that Jesus does not separate the disciples into status groups. He doesn't separate them into political parties. He doesn't separate them into into age and stage. He doesn't do that. If you remember, Jesus' enemy was at the table with him. They are all together at the table. And Paul does this because what's at stake in Corinth is is not practice necessarily. Okay? Paul reiterating these words and saying, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. Paul is telling us as, as readers now in the 21st century that this is something that has been handed down from Jesus himself, that it was being passed along. So this was something that the Corinthian church understood. They didn't misunderstand the Lord's Supper. They understood that the theological significance of what was taking place. They understood that this was something that Jesus instituted and that they were to practice. So it wasn't practice necessarily that was at stake. But as one commentator called it, it was a marked social stratification. Meaning some in the Corinthian church were more concerned with their social status than they were with the covenant community. Which we could say is 50% of what, we, of what the supper represents when we gather around the table. Unity with Christ this vertical unity, or this uh, vertical unity with Christ, but also unity with each other. This horizontal unity that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and by taking the bread from the one loaf and taking the wine from the one cup, symbolizes the internal unity, coherence, and equality within the church. Jesus also tells us that. This is a covenant meal. Jesus says in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this means as Christians that when we take the supper, we are announcing over and over again, every single week, we are announcing that we are in covenant with Jesus and in covenant with one another as the church. 
It is covenant renewal that takes place every time we come to this table. I am reminding you of my belief in Jesus and my love for you as brothers and sisters. And I am, I am affirming you in your own belief in Jesus when we come to the table together and we celebrate and rejoice together because we're taking the one cup and the one bread together. To quote another pastor, Stephen Um, he says, when Christians eat common bread and drink from a common cup, it is a symbol a visual representation of the common divisions and disunities of our world being conquered in Christ. And so Paul calls for unity around the table. And when this happens, it is no longer a table filled with strife, but it's a table that is filled with grace. And few things happen, and a few things happen when the supper is seen as this grace-filled table. Not a fractured table, but a grace-filled table. So this entire passage that, uh, that we've been uh, digging into this morning has presented us with, with an upside-down picture of how grace is supposed to function in the Christian community. Because grace looks outward. Grace moves us toward one another. Grace is, is inclusive. Grace is what we've received from Christ. So what does a grace-filled table look like? There's a couple of things here. One is uh, through personal grace uh, or personal grace, and that happens through self-examination. Look at verses 27 through 28. Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, Paul is saying, you are therefore guilty of denying the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. You are disregarding what the table represents, which is your rescue from sin through Christ. The Puritan preacher and writer Thomas Watson gave this illustration in his little book called The Lord's Supper. Um, Puritans were not very creative with their book titles, but, uh, but he says this, the musician first puts his instrument in tune before he plays the heart must first be prepared and put in tune before it goes to meet with God in this solemn ordinance of the sacrament. Take heed of rashness and irreverence. So the Greek word for examine here is a metaphor taken from a, a goldsmith who, who uh, critically tests his metals for any imperfections, any impurities that are found in the meadow. And he meticulously looks at, at his gold for these things. So before you come to the Lord's table, you are to make a serious and critical trial of your own heart by the word. Now, in a lot of ways, this is, what, this is why we have liturgy, is because we are, what we're doing from the very beginning of the service all the way through um, to the end, but, but even before we get to the, to, the, to the end, we are preparing your heart 
to come to the table. That's why we have confession of sin earlier in the service, not after the, the Lord's Supper, because we want to, we want to uh, do business with the Lord in that way, to meticulously look at our own hearts and critically put our hearts on trial through the Word of God. And when you do this, when you begin to, to make that a practice, you will quickly find Christ there to meet you to remind you of his grace towards you, to, to remind you that it's he who has cleared the path to the table for you. Because notice that Paul says, uh, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. He does not say uh, no unworthy individuals are welcome at the table. But he says, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner, not not." Don't let unworthy individuals come. Because if that were the case, if it was unworthy individual there, it, we would never come to the table. I would never come to the table. You would never come to the table because we're all unworthy to do so, apart from Jesus. Which means when you don't examine yourself to find reasons, you don't examine yourself to find reasons you are unworthy. That's not what you're doing. You're not going to sit here and journal out, this is why I'm unworthy, this is why I can't come to the table today, this is why, or whatever. You examine yourself to find evidence of a repentant heart. You, you examine yourself so that you can find grace at work in you. No matter what sin you have brought into this place today, no matter what sort of vice that you are struggling with, you are examining yourself to find Jesus there. Not yourself, necessarily. Now, there are times you should refrain from the table. And, and, but the only time you should refrain from the table is when repentance and apathy are hardening your heart toward God and toward others. That's the only time you should refrain from taking the supper. So there's personal grace at the table, but there's also communal grace at the table that is experienced when we, we look around at those that we are communing with at the table. So look at verses 29 through 34. Paul says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So, so when Paul speaks about the body here in verse 29, he's not speaking about your own physical body. He is speaking about the church. And this is in line contextually with what Paul said back in chapter 10, verse 17, when he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Not to mention the fact that Paul says the phrase, 
when you come together, I don't know if you noticed that when Lance was reading the text, uh, he says this over and over again in these verses. In verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, he adds. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Verse 34, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So essentially what Paul is saying to do here, well, first off, Paul is affirming the gathered uh, body, which this is, this is biblical. This is supposed to take place week in and week out. We are supposed to gather as the body of Christ every single week. But essentially what Paul is saying here to do, his application to the Corinthians is this, and to us, look around. Look around at those who are communing with you. Look around at the other brothers. Look around at the other sisters who are, who, who are going to join you at this table today. And because of the Corinthians' divisions amongst them, they were not doing this. They were not looking around. They were not considering others. And they were, they were not proclaiming the gospel faithfully. Verse 33, Paul says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. They were not waiting. They were just going ahead and they were, they were, they were eating and they were, they were overindulging on food and, and in drink. And so when the other participants arrived, they were feeling left out. And so in Philippians 2, Paul, another letter of Paul, he says something similar as he, as he points to Christ's example of humility at the cross. And he says these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that, friends, is our example. That as we look around, that we are to wait for one another. We are to, 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 to put others' needs before our own because Christ put your needs before his own. And the Lord's Supper then is this, becomes this observable feast that, that visually and practically, uh, not, only, not only reminding us of the vertical aspects of our commun communion with God through Christ and, and our horizontal, the horizontal implications of, of our communion with one another, but it is also pointing a watching world to this reality. That we are communing with the God of the universe and that, that Jesus Christ himself makes that possible, but we're also communing with those who are different from us, socially, racially, financially, age and stage, all of those things that I mentioned earlier that we are being united, not around anything physical like that, but we are being united by the one thing that can, that can 
unite a, a diverse body like this? The cross of Jesus Christ. And when we do this, Paul says, when we come to the table, when we share this feast, week in and week out, we are proclaiming to each other and we are proclaiming to a watching world the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are... We are a people who are slow to understand. We are a people who constantly fall back into um, our old ways, our old ways of doing things, our, our old rituals. We, we, we oftentimes look more to the culture than we look to the gospel. We're, we're just as guilty as the church in Corinth at times. And so for that, Lord, we, we ask for your forgiveness we ask that you would remind us uh, anew this morning of, of what you have done for us uh, through Christ and in Christ, through his broken body and his poured out blood. That we would be reminded that, that we are unworthy to come to the table apart from that reality of the broken body of Christ. That it's Jesus himself who paves a way and makes a way for us to come to this table, to, to commune with you and to commune with each other. And so I do pray that we would be a picture of this final apologetic that Jesus prayed for. That we would be one as you and the Father are one, Jesus, that we would proclaim your death until you come again. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.